Chapter Twenty Six of War and Women by Mrs. St. Clair Stobart. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Six. But now that the War Office has organized through the BRCS a system of voluntary aid detachments in which women are invited to serve, and that this scheme has been all over the country largely taken up by women, isn't that enough? It may be asked. But I answer emphatically, no. This BAD scheme is, to my mind, worse than nothing. For it acts as a placebo, a bread pill, to dupe women into the belief that they are being treated seriously by the war office. If women are to do the real territorial work, they must be made a real living portion of the territorial army. They must work with and under the organization of the territorial army and not primarily as now, under the jurisdiction of a Red Cross society, which is intrinsically an organization for other purposes. The duplication of authority is crippling in time of peace. It would be fatal in time of war. Conditions of training must, if they are to be of any practical use, be military conditions dictated by military authorities. Women who are to perform national work should be enlisted and paid as men are paid in the territorial army, and real work, not play work, must be exacted by those who understand the kind of work which would be required in military eventualities. It is true that at the moment the War Office sends a representative to inspect VADs. But these representatives pass their verdict according to standards which are hopelessly inadequate and inappropriate to real conditions of warfare. The whole thing is a farce a mere drawing-room game conducted upon the principle that women are incapable of anything but amateur nursing. More and more stress is laid upon the importance of the linen frock and white apron hospital work on the assumption that the only place for volunteer women in warfare will be within hospital wards. But from experience of what I saw and heard in the Balkan hospitals, other than our own, it is precisely within the wards of hospitals that volunteer and amateur women who are untrained and undisciplined are least wanted. Within the wards, trained nurses who have been subjected to discipline, not the least valuable portion of their training, and who have given up their lives to the work, are for many reasons essential. Volunteer women are wanted to render first aid in every department of work that occurs between the removal of the wounded from the field hospital to their arrival at the base hospital. They should certainly be able to render first aid in nursing, as in bandaging, convoy work, cooking, and all the branches of work within the area specified, but should not be allowed to regard themselves as trained nurses. The result in the wards in time of war would be deplorable. Women who are to be efficient in the territorial sphere must be given opportunities of training and discipline similar to those which are given to territorial RAMC men. The triviality of the training, the lack of discipline, and the haphazardness of the whole VAD scheme, as now in practice, would result in fiasco in time of emergency, and the whole cause of women's work in national service would be seriously prejudiced. It is true that a severer and more military regime would probably exclude thousands of women who now proudly rejoice at having obtained medals for attending half a dozen lectures or first aid and home nursing. But this elimination is essential to serious work. There are at the moment thousands of women on the VAD registers who would be a grave hindrance to real work in time of emergency. As long as they are allowed to play around in the movement, so long will the movement be a mockery of the aspirations of earnest and capable women. It would be far better for the nation to have at command a few hundred trained and disciplined women upon whom, in emergency, reliance could be placed, 
than to permit hordes of undisciplined women to be registered as members of VADs and to regard themselves as fully qualified, without discrimination as to capacity and training, to take positions of responsibility in time of war. I plead that women who are seriously desirous of joining the Territorial Army as workers should be allowed to form a supplementary Army Medical Corps of women, to act in conjunction with the RAMC of men and to be subject to the same authority as the men. Is it not a suggestive thought for those who still doubt the capacity of women to do this, that or the other thing which has hitherto been done only by men, that throughout the whole range of chemistry similarity of arrangement means similarity of property? The properties of the atoms are dependent on the arrangement of the corpuscles of which they are composed. It is not the intrinsic quality, or size, or weight of the atom, but arrangement which gives character. Whatever may be the difference in the comparative weights of respective atoms, there will be similarity of property if there is similarity of arrangement in the corpuscles of which they are composed. Is it unreasonable to assume that the differences between the characters of men and of women respectively is due chiefly to the differences of arrangement or of training which they undergo? There is little, if any, of the work which is at present being performed by the men of the RAMC which could not be done by women and even though the authority should still wish to prevent women from coming on to the actual field of battle, there is plenty of other RAMC work which could still be accomplished by women. So long as there is a shortage in territorial numbers, it is wasteful to draw off able-bodied men from the fighting line to do any work which could be done by women. The summation, however, of the whole argument is this. The changed conditions of women's life have forced her from the narrow circle of her own home to the broader arena of the outside world. Here she has to compete for a livelihood with man, in the business, arts, trades, and professions of life. But it is clear that if woman is to share with man the advantages of a government which protects her industries and means of livelihood, she must share with man in the responsibility of defending that government from foes without as well as from foes within. The question as to whether woman should share in the government of her country is a part of the woman question which we are not here dealing. But it is in any case transparent that the duty of participating in the defense of a country follows as a corollary to participation in work and benefits provided by that country. If, however, woman is to defend the country in a serviceable way, as a duty and not a game, she must be seriously trained, not only in the work, but also in the discipline which the proper conduct of the work demands. And if she is to be trained and disciplined, and thus made of practical service to the country, she must be rewarded as men are rewarded by pay and titles and ranks which are recognized in the territorial army as the rewards for definitely recognized work. Her work would then be a national service, and should be under the same control as the national service of men. The energies and activities formerly contributed by women to the work conducted within the home needs appropriating and channeling if it is not to bring disaster to the community. Could there be a more serviceable aqueduct for the surplus activity of those seriously minded women who are now at a loose end than employment in the territorial service of their country? It is now hoped that the practical demonstration which the Women's Convoy Corps have given in the Balkans of the capacity of women to be of independent service and to endure practical difficulties in the sphere of war, without hindrance to others or harm to themselves, may help, 
if only in a humble way, to convince our old friend public opinion of the expediency of answering in the affirmative the question with which we started this book. Ought women to take a practical share in national defense, and to be included as an integral portion of the territorial service? He who wishes to cling to the old that ages not must leave behind him the old that ages. May I then, in conclusion, ask those who base their opposition to women's participation in the more active work of the outer world, and who still cling to their time-worn fetish, a woman's fear is the home, to remember that the women who desire to serve their country are not as a rule the women who neglect, they are, on the contrary, the women who would defend their homes. They have no desire to relinquish their old ideal of being the guardian angels of the home. But they now regard home in the larger sense of country and of empire, and desire to be allowed to share with man the larger morality of the larger term. If the men who are in authority at the war office and elsewhere would learn to distinguish between women and femininities, they would not be afraid as to the result of this new desire on the part of women. They would then understand the significance of the old Friulian saying, What the woman wanteth, God wanteth, and what God wanteth cometh to pass. End of chapter 26 End of War and Women by Mrs. St. Clair Stobart Recorded by Celine Major.